God is good. All the time. time. Welcome to everybody that joins us online every single week. Uh, Welcome to our CM campus. When I was a teenager, a significant amount of my involvement in sport occurred without coaches or parents in the mix. I played football and I, I ran track, but the, really my, my most fun times I had in sports were played in unorganized ways. Back then we just handled things ourselves. I think if I were to drive by somewhere and if I saw an empty lot filled with kids playing football or baseball, like a pickup game, I think I'd stop and take a picture because it's just been so long since I've seen it. This time of year, we played football. Tackle, no helmets, no pets. Home field was the IOOF Cemetery in DuCoin, Illinois. We played no away games. <laughs> the playing field was an open acre running along North Line Street. My family owned a modest home just across the street from the stadium. We chose up sides as evenly as possible. We always had the two best players pick from among the players on the field. And if someone got their feelings hurt, it was widely accepted that life is hard. Not only that, if they started playing better, they might move up in the draft next time. That was always available to them. There were no officials, but there were rules. And enforcement of those rules accounted for 99% of the conflict we had in unorganized athletics. You see, in football, the only way you could call a penalty was for the player who felt that they had been held, interfered with, or had some foul of a personal nature or exceedingly violent nature inflicted upon their person. So the only way to call a penalty was for you to call the penalty on someone else. You had to be careful about this because calling too many penalties on other players was a clear sign of lack of toughness and an inability to manage your own problems. Now, some infractions were obvious, like if a wide receiver went up to catch a ball and you planted them in the ground before the ball got there. That was obvious. We're, We're all okay there. Some players were notorious for just playing dirty. You know, they they just played dirty. And anything you called on them was fine. Everybody knew they were guilty. (laughs) Injuries resulting in bloodshed or obvious injuries, particularly compound fractures, were just fine. Everybody realized if somebody really hurt you, someone should be penalized. That went without an incident. However, some called infractions were not so obvious. These often resulted in discussion, which turned into an argument, which turned into a standoff, which always ended with the immortal words, are you just going to stand there or are you going to do something about it? At that point, things either simmered down or a fist fight broke out, but regardless, the game quickly resumed. I wonder how many times Jesus says to us after he pings us, are you going to just stand there? Or are you going to do something about it? 
Paul wrote the Colossians because he heard the church was in peril. Jesus pinged, and he did something about it. He needed to end the false teaching and bad theology that had invaded Colossae. And that's really the question, isn't it? Things are tough all over these days. They're just tough all over. Need is everywhere. And the question becomes, are we just going to sit there or are we going to do something about it? I think it's pretty easy to glibly look at the world and manic people that comprise it and determine it's not your fault and it's not your problem. And it, well, may not be your fault. But I do need to tell you something. If God pings you, you do have a problem. The second God pings you, in some way, prompts you through the work of the Holy Spirit, the second you are pinged, you have a problem. You have to be obedient to God or not. And that's a problem. And nobody can decide that for you. You see, as Christian people, we can't be content just to get ourselves to heaven. We've been gifted by the Holy Spirit, and we are to use those gifts in service to Christ and in service to his church. I want to suggest to you that we are called to do something about the things that God pings us to do something about. Can we solve all the problems in the world? No. But just because you can't do everything doesn't excuse you from doing something. God never asks us to do everything. He only asked that of one person, and his name was Jesus Christ. He asked us to do something. Paul is calling for Christian leaders to lead. So those that God has entrusted to them will be made fully mature in Christ. Leadership is hard. I just want to tell you, leadership is hard. And there's really only one guarantee that comes with leadership. It will cost you something. It will cost you something. If you've ever mentored someone who's in a really bad place, you fully realize any good that comes to them comes at your expense. You give, they receive. It's like raising kids. It's just how it works. Paul is not acting like that leadership, mentorship, and investing in others in a Christian context is easy. He's not acting like it's easy. He's not acting like it won't occasionally blow up in your face. He's telling us it is worth it. It's worth it. How can we do such a difficult thing as hear and heed God's pings? We have to depend on the mighty power of Christ within us and not our own goodness or our sense of altruism or our force of will. But make no mistake, it does take a toll. It takes a toll. The more ministry that you're engaging in and the longer you've done it, it takes a toll. You want to know why? Because the only time leadership is easy is when leadership is not required. One of my favorite metaphors for Christian ministry comes from the account of God's calling of Moses. Think about God's calling of Moses. 
The biblical text reads that Moses saw a bush burning, but not consumed. That's always been a powerful metaphor for me concerning Christian ministry. I've been doing this a long time, and I've been in Christian leadership a long time. I pray about decisions. I get all the information I can. But uh, Christian leadership's a little bit like baseball. Sometimes you can absolutely drill the ball and everything still goes wrong. Sometimes you just absolutely mishit it and it bloops in for a double. But for the most part, you're better off to drill the ball. You're better off just to drill the ball. I have not always hit the ball hard. There have been times that I've just straight up missed it. I've not been perfect in every conceivable way as a Christian leader, but I have learned how to do one thing, stay in it for the long haul. I've learned how to do it without burning up, and I've learned how to do it without burning out. And I've learned how to do it without letting all of the intrinsic pressures of ministry get to me and consume me. And that is what Paul is teaching us how to do tonight. I want to be on fire for Jesus. And I want you to be on fire for Jesus. But I don't want you to burn up. And I don't want you to burn out. I started ministry in 1986. 1986, Uh, I can tell you this. I have more fire in my belly for Jesus and for ministry today than I did when I started. There is absolutely no doubt about that. You see, for me, the the key to long-term sustainability through the hardships of Christian ministry is not found in the fire, it's found in the fuel. When we say yes to the pings of God, when you say yes to the pings of God, we cannot rely on our own strength, our own resiliency, our own commitment, or our own training. Because if we do, we'll burn out because we are the fuel source. If we rely on ourselves to do ministry, we are the fuel source. What Paul is talking about here is changing your fuel source. We must learn to rely on what Paul calls the mighty power of Christ within us. You see, if we are fueled for ministry by the Holy Spirit, flames will will perpetually burn clean and bright. God will bring us into Christian maturity, even as we lead others into Christian maturity. But we won't burn out and we won't burn up. If you're burned out tonight, I would just ask you, check your fuel source. Check your fuel source. Because if it's you, you're going to burn up. But if it's the Holy Spirit, you've got something else rolling entirely. You see, until we learn to do ministry using Holy Ghost rocket fuel, we're always going to be in this cycle of leaning in, catching fire, burning out, backing off, leaning in, catching fire, burning out, backing off. And it goes on and on and on and on. And the only way to stop that in Christian leadership is to change your fuel source. So let's get at this. Verse 1, I want you to know how much I've agonized for you and for the church at Laodicea, for many other believers, and for many other believers who have never met me personally. 
There's a common literary practice back then when writing to friends to mention other friends. I don't know you, but I know people you know. I care about people that you know. In this case, Paul is writing to Colossae. He mentions Laodicea, which is located in the same Lycus River Valley, 10 miles to the northwest. Paul is expressing some knowledge of the region, but what he's really doing is sharing his heart for the people and the churches there. He's saying, I don't have to know you personally to care deeply about you spiritually. This is a big church. I can't know everybody personally like I did when this church ran 200. But I don't have to know you personally to care about you spiritually. And that's what Paul is telling the Christians at Colossae. He uses the word struggle. It's it's translated in the NLT, agonized. But struggle is really the root in Greek for the word agony. Agonize. It, It literally translates, for this I labor to the point of exhaustion. This is agonizing. Have you ever been in Christian ministry? Have you ever had a burden on your heart so strong and so deep you literally agonized over it? The word has an athletic connotation. It denotes an athlete pushing past physical limitation to obtain a prize. I remember back in softball days, uh, Jeff and I played a gazillion softball games together and we were getting a little older. Uh, I mean, I was still in my early 50s, and, and we were playing with, with 30-year-olds. And I remember some of those weekend tournaments. It'd be 100 degrees out. We lost our first game, so we're having to play back on the backside, which means you play every game until you get beat. And 100 degrees, we would play game after game after game after game. And I was a 51-year-old shortstop. And I remember by the end of those games, I remember thinking to myself, I've got to push through this. I've got to push through this because I can be out here and be miserable and lose, or I can be out here and be miserable and win. So by gosh, why don't we win? And I just remember reaching down inside of me and just saying, I'm going to give this everything I've got. And Melissa can tell you, There were nights after those tournaments, she had to carry me up the stairs. (laughs) Literally, carry me up the stairs. I had nothing left. We played a tournament in Redbud that was exactly like I described. And by the end of the tournament, I finally went to the doctor. I had internal injuries that took months to heal just from diving and landing on balls and, and competing. Paul's saying, I agonize for you like that. As a leader, my heart agonizes for you in that way. It's a reminder that we don't have to know people personally to care about them. We don't have to have visited a place to be deeply concerned about it. Some of you may have places in the world on your heart, and you don't know a person there. You maybe have never been there. But God's put something on your heart. You see, some burdens God puts on our shoulders. And if God's done that, you just need to wear it. You just need to wear it. Because God put it there. 
Say, how long do I need to do that? Till God takes it off. Till God takes it off. Verse 2. I want them to be encouraged and knit together by strong ties of love. I want them to have complete confidence that they understand God's mysterious plan, which is Christ himself. I'm a big believer in playing for the end game. Just play for the end game. Decide what it is you want to have happen. Make sure all of your actions are in alignment with that. I'm always asking people, what are you trying to accomplish? I see what you're doing. But what are you trying to accomplish? So Paul has an end game. He gives us six things that are a part of his end game as a Christian leader. If you are a Christian leader, this, these six things are the end game. Here we go. Number one, that you will be encouraged. Guys, we need to encourage people. We need to encourage people. You say, well, you know, sometimes you got to be prophetic. Yes, you do. But I'm going to tell you, we need 20 encouragers for every one prophet. People are beaten down. People are tired. And they're beat up these days. We need encouragement. So if you are a Christian leader, encourage people. Encourage people. Not only that, you'll get invited to more birthday parties than prophets. It'd be great. Number two, that you'd be united in love. It's really cool. It doesn't say you'd be united in every single thing. It says that you'd be, not, be united in love. And the love you have for God. And the love you have for one another. And the love you have for the church. Did you know being a child of God gives us more in common than anything else ever could? You have more in common with the people in this room, whether you know them or not, than you could possibly imagine because we are united in God's love. We're united in God's love. Number three, we want people to be confident. We want them to be confident. We don't want to just teach them. We want them to be confident in that faith. Number four, we want them to be understanding. Have you ever kind of, anybody in school Maybe at work, somebody asks you if you've got something, but you really don't have it. You know what I mean? Do you understand that? Uh-huh. <laughs> right? Perhaps. Paul wants them to truly understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. Part of what I'm trying to do as is, is a pastor is help you truly understand the word. I, I try to depoliticize it. I try to de-Americanize it. I'm just trying to give you the word of God. And I'm trying to help you grow in understanding of it. And then, and then Paul wants them to be assured in their faith. I love the old saying that I know, that I know, that I know, that I know that I belong to Jesus. That's where I want you to be. If you even want to add extra, I know that I know, that's okay. But I want you to be assured in your faith. I want you to be assured in your beliefs. And that way, when you run into somebody, it's radiating at high frequency, all the Jesus haters and church haters out there. You don't have to back down, and you don't have to get in a bad mood, and you don't have to be all defensive about it. Because people who are assured in their faith don't have to radiate at high frequencies. They just stand solid, stable. I want you to be there. And then number six, to be Christ-centered. To have Christ at the center of your life. It's such an important thing. Verse 3, in him, Christ, lie hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. If you don't know what's going on in Colossae, you're not going to understand this piece. 
This verse taps into what I would call the better angels of every civilization. And it identifies their source. It says, wisdom and knowledge. Knowledge represents what we accurately know of the world around us. It's what we accurately know of the world around us. It's part of the problem with the American news cycle today. Uh, At times, I will watch two competing stations cover the exact same event, and not only am I not convinced they're talking about the same thing, I am not convinced they're talking about events that occurred on the same planet. So I just want to be real clear right now. Knowledge is accurately understanding the world around us. Wisdom is the ability to apply that knowledge in useful ways. So knowledge is what you know. Wisdom is how you implement what you know in useful ways. In the Roman Empire, to be learned and helpful was considered true wealth. The rich person, the wealthy person, was considered to be learned and helpful. And Paul argues that Jesus is the wellspring of all good things that we know and what good things we still need to know. Whatever it is you need to know, Jesus is all you need. Whatever it is you think you need to know, Jesus is all you need. Whatever it is you've forgotten that you should still know, Jesus is all you need. Jesus is not just the giver of all good things. Jesus is the source of all good things. Verse also takes a clear shot at those in Colossae who were purporting the false belief that we are saved by what we know. We generally call this way of thinking Gnosticism, which is way too complex to get into. But the Gnostics generally taught that the true secrets of salvation were carefully guarded by spiritual gatekeepers and available only to the few. Paul taught that the true secret of salvation is hidden in Christ and in him it's revealed to all. So to put it very bluntly, Paul is arguing that salvation isn't about what you know, it's about who you know. Verse 4, I'm telling you this so no one will deceive you with well-crafted arguments. Greek here is steeped in the legal tradition. We might call it lawyer talk, how a defense attorney might cleverly use words to get a client freed who's clearly guilty. The ability to use words effectively really sits on a neutral platform in the New Testament. It's a skill set, but it's a neutral platform. It's the intent of those arguments that make all of the difference. The serpent in the Garden of Eden used well-crafted arguments to entice Eve and Adam to be disobedient to God, and the whole world fell as a result. Read the passage where the serpent is tempting Adam and Eve. He is using well-crafted arguments. I think it's important that Paul writes to equip the Colossians to resist verbal seduction by gifted false teachers who twisted and manipulated the gospel for their own ends. You say there's a lot of false teachers out there today. There's always been a lot of false teachers out there. Paul is trying to equip the Colossians to be able to tell the difference between the real thing and a fake. So I want to use just an example of 
how the scripture can be improperly used and how it could be properly used. So I'm going to use the consumption of alcohol as an example. Imagine a person deeply believes that no Christian should drink alcohol under any circumstances. Okay? person deeply believes that. Now, I was raised in a tradition that firmly held this position. And even if Christians did drink, they should have the decency to hide it. <laughs> the weakness concerning this hardline stance is that though the Bible forbids drunkenness, it really doesn't forbid drinking other than special circumstances and for very special groups of people like Nazarites. So what I really discovered was that some of the most Bible-believing people out there really had a position not fully supported by the Bible. And that struck me as being a little problematic. So what happens a lot of times, since the Bible does not support their firmly held position, some unethical people, in my opinion, choose to manipulate. They get into lawyer talk with it. I have heard this argument over the decades time and time again. The kind of wine used in the Bible did not contain alcohol. So drinking back then was completely different. I've heard people teach they used grape juice back then. It really wasn't wine. The historical problem with this notion is that it is ridiculous. <laughs> That's the problem with it. The reason they fermented things is because they would keep. They would keep if fermented. The other problem is that people in the Bible got drunk with some regularity. I mean, with some regularity. And not only that, but people also did dumb stuff when they drank, just like they do today. <laughs> so that didn't change. I, I don't drink. That's my choice, and I think I can build a pretty good cultural case for it. Back in the Bible times, if somebody had too much to drink, worst case scenario, they fell off their donkey and hit the sand. Now people get in vehicles, and all kinds of bad things can happen, and it's just something I personally don't need. So I don't drink. My choice, I've got reasons for it. But to say that my position is mandated in the Bible is, is dishonest. It's really kind of absurd. I'm not going to be deceptive about it by trying to convince you that the Bible says something that it doesn't, whether it agrees with my position or not. That, for me, is integrity as a Bible teacher. And my hope is that you'll find me credible and honest when I deal with the Bible. Whether or not it agrees with my sensibilities my social positions, or my politics are not. You see, the best defense against false teaching is to teach God's people to know the Bible for themselves. That's why we read the Bible through. That's why we have the online platforms. That's why I go verse by verse through books in the Bible on Wednesday nights. The best defense you have against false teaching is to be literate in the word of God, to know what is in there for yourself. I'm doing my best to help you grasp that. Paul is saying to the Colossians, my only purpose in writing is out of a sense of love for you. God's prompting to do so 
and to equip you to recognize unscrupulous people who may come in to deceive. I'm sharing the truth about Christ so that you can easily recognize a counterfeit gospel. You see, Paul is warning against willful deceivers who are disguised as Christian leaders. I'm not talking about warning against Christian leaders who aren't perfect. There are no perfect people. He's warning against Christian leaders who are intentionally deceiving. There's a big difference between a teacher or leader being wrong on something and a teacher or leader attempting to deceive and manipulate. The former is correctable, the latter damnable. Verse 5, for though I am far away from you, my heart is with you and I rejoice that you are living as you should and that your faith in Christ is strong. You notice how Paul will give a little correction and then he'll loop back around to encouragement. He'll give a little correction. He'll loop back around to encouragement. What do we often do? We give a little correction. Then we give a little more correction. And then we give a little more correction. And then we add a little more correction yet. And we wonder why it goes poorly. I love what Paul does here. A little correction, a lot of encouragement. Little correction, a lot of encouragement. Then maybe he doubles up on encouragement before he goes back to correction. It's a really good model that we have here. I love the occasions when Paul's pastoral heart shines through. One of my problems as, as a young pastor in dealing with Paul, if you look my first 10, 15 years, I really didn't deal with Paul much. And I hate to say this, I just didn't like him. You know, I mean, seriously, it'd be kind of like, why would you want to read a book if you don't like the author? And, and I, I just struggled with it. But on these occasions where I see Paul's pastoral heart, I went to Greece a few years ago because I wanted to get to know Paul better. I needed, I needed to develop a friendship with Paul. And verses like this really helped me. Because his heart shines through. And especially here, because it's shining on people he doesn't even know. In a place he's never been. When I see passage like this, it humanizes a Christian leader that could easily be characterized as a ministry mutant. And it makes him really difficult to write off as an anomaly when you see he's a real person with real emotions and real feelings. When you see his kind of better angels come out, it just warms your heart toward Paul. This section does not convey the harsh criticism that we see from Paul in other letters. In fact, he functions a lot more as a pastor, gently correcting, than a prophet harshly rebuking. And part of the reason is because they wouldn't have heard his rebuke. They just wouldn't have listened to him if he would have come on hard line. They'd say, who in the world are you? We don't know you. This is offered in love, and it's not offered in frustration. How often do we rebuke only after we've become frustrated? You know, I had this thing when my kids were growing up. I was never going to discipline the kids when I was mad. I just wasn't going to do it. And then I got noticing I never really disciplined the kids, so I got to be problematic in another way. But, uh, you know, Paul's not frustrated here. He's not radiating at a high frequency here. He's just acting on a ping to write the church. And it's exactly what he is doing. 
You see, Colossians is a measured attempt to catch a theological disease while it is still very, very treatable. Sometimes we have things going on in our lives and in our hearts, and they can still be caught while they're treatable. But you let those things go on much longer, you're going to have a real problem. And that's one of the things I love about just dealing with the Bible as it comes, because you can't duck anything. If you were at church Sunday, I, I preached on fasting. And when I was preparing that message, I couldn't quite escape the fact that I don't fast very often. I just don't. You know, if there's like a big fast called, I'd be in. But as far as regular part of my life, didn't do it. Not hadn't it. But as a result of me coming up against that, it really served as a rebuke to me. I decided as a leader... I'm going to be real transparent about this, and I'm going to do something about it, and I'm going to invite other people to do some about it with me if they want. And it is incredible what I've read about the ways that you all fasted, the way that God moved in your heart, the way that by creating disruptions in your schedule, you found a place to, to put God in and all the things God has done. You see, if we allow God to correct us early, Saves us a whole lot of problems later. And that's what Paul's trying to do with the church of Colossae. Paul readily admits he does not know this community or this church. He readily admits that he's presently far away, and he'll probably never meet them. But he cares deeply about them. And he rejoices in their Christian lives, and he rejoices in their strong faith. You know, often we don't do Anything because we can't do everything. Sometimes if we can't do what we want to do the way we want to do it, we simply do nothing at all. I think it happens with fasting a lot of times. You know, people just kind of say, you know, if I can't fast for a good solid 40 days, I think I'll just pass altogether. Had Paul taken this position, he would have never written this letter. Hear me one more time. Often we do nothing because we can't do everything. And if Paul had taken that position, he wouldn't have written this letter. I assure you, what Paul wanted to do was travel down to Colossae to get to know the people, share his heart with them once he got to know them, to do relational ministry. Guarantee you, Paul would have thought that to be preferable in every way. But his Roman incarceration made that an impossibility. He couldn't go, so he wrote. Concerning the short game, Paul would probably say, I did the next best thing. But concerning the long game, had Paul been free to visit, we wouldn't have the letter that turned into the book of Colossians. If, if plan A had been able to be executed, we would not have Colossians in the Bible or the other prison epistles. The fact that we have a New Testament today is because God moved on the hearts of people yesterday. They did something. They didn't just stand there. They did something about it. They wrote when it would have been understandable not to write. They risked when it would have been understandable to play it safe. They obeyed the ping when the ping may have made no sense to them at all. And it changed everything. It changed everything. 
How do you change everything? By doing something. How do you know what to do? You go with the pings that God has put on your heart. How's it going to go? Poorly, usually. And unless you learn to tap into the fuel of the Holy Spirit, you will burn out. But you know what? God can use you in ways you cannot presently imagine. You can have a life filled with purpose and passion and peace and power that you would not believe. But you can't just stand there. you got to do something. In the kingdom of God, there's always more going on than what is going on. God pinged Epaphras to inform Paul in prison about the situation in the Colossian church. Paul was moved by that information And he felt pinged to write a letter since he couldn't go. This letter was probably intended for less than 100 people. You guys with me? It was probably intended for less than 100 people. But there's always more going on than what is going on. The council that canonized the Bible centuries later felt pinged to make this letter a part of the New Testament. And the ideas that Paul shared for a hundred have not only been read by hundreds of millions, they are inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, and they are just as relevant at this moment as they were the moment that Paul put pen to parchment. Incredible things can happen when we finally decide we're not any longer going to just stand there. We are going to do something about it.